Hello and welcome to Midlife Athlete Podcast. I'm uh, your co-host, uh, Jason Smith, and as usual, I'm joined by Greg. How are you, Greg? Very well, mate. Very well. Good. Um, we've got we've got a guest on today that actually follows a similar trajectory to to you. Well, kind of, in the okay. sense that um, a long, <laughs> long time, long time rugby player who's yeah, yeah. turned to other pastimes. Um, welcome, Simon Hutchinson. Hi there. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's very odd to be um, on this side of the microphone. I'm usually uh, hosting, so um, really, really appreciate the invite. No, not at all. So we should say that um, for listeners who listen to the Joe Mosley um, episode that we had, Joe very kindly put us in touch with Simon because Simon is a sup boarder. And um, I think you've got a sup, sup where uh, business as well. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm all into the sup world entirely. Um, so, yeah, I started um, a sup where brand back in 2014. And um, I also... Um, present the, the SUP FM podcast, which is an international podcast talking about SUP, um, of whom one of the guests uh, that we've had on is Jo Mosley. And uh, she's a fantastic role model for the sport. And uh, it's very kind of her to su- suggest that I, I join you. Now, I've, well, I've, 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 got interject, I've got to interject. I've got to interject. Okay, Because go I, I, I was there thinking, right, I, I've never SUP boarded. Uh, and I was thinking, what does SUP mean? <laughs> I must ask that question. Did I work it out? Well, well, there we go. Stand up paddle, stand up paddleboard, is it? <laughs> exactly, stand up paddleboard. So, uh, right, so okay. generally, we we talk about sup rather than sup boarding, but that is a contentious yeah. discussion to have. Oh, okay. okay. So, so, that, so there you go. It depends whether you hyphenate or run those words together. But there you go. That's probably one for the nerds, really. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a sport that's been in fabulous growth, particularly since um, the last. Um, lock or the first lockdown actually um, people have really taken to it and that's been um, you know fantastic for the sport a bit of a, a mixed blessing for a, a, such a new sport and there's been all sorts of challenges that have, have come along um, with that but um, you know it's a sport that particularly um, it is is attractive to the to the middle-aged athlete um, of which obviously I count myself one of those and um, you know I've come from quite a, a long sporting background from the age of four when I first stepped out on the rugby field in my little flappy shorts and uh, eventually retired at the age of, of 35 um, and um, and grew up in a, a rugby playing family. So, um, so Greg, I, I understand you uh, certainly share some of my background and the love of the sport. It's about it's a, yeah. I still think my t- my timelines are similar. I probably I still play very very occasionally, but my 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 full sort of uh, perfect oh, not professional my full full time uh, playing probably ended mid thirties like yourself. Having started, you know, mini rugby when I was when I was uh, knee high to a to a scrum half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I reached the end of my career around about yeah thirty five, I guess. And I I think it'd be dangerous for me to go out on the pitch now. I mean, generally, if it takes you longer than a week to recover from your weekly rugby match, then you kind of know that that's that's about the the time to to draw the well, line. I've played in a few vets games and it takes me about a week just to recover from the first tackle. So, uh, so, so <laughs> good fun though. The thing is that everyone slows down. Yes. <laughs> That's the good thing about vets rugby. Yeah. Everyone is a bit slower. So, uh, yeah. Um, but the, the, although there are, when you're 50, there are, there are the youngsters, the 35 mm. <laughs> and they yeah. can still put a bit of speed on. Yeah. Exactly. Are you ready? Are you ready for, um, walking rugby yet, Greg? <laughs> you cheeky bugger! Uh, I, no, <laughs> he said. He said indignantly. <laughs> um, so Simon, you you start you started with rugby, and, you, and obviously you played that for a massive long period of time. But I think before you got into setboarding, like many other rugby players, you were probably searching around and, and and tried a few other sports. Do you want to kind of give us a little bit of that sort of journey that you experienced? Yeah, absolutely. Well, towards the end of my rugby career, I, I sort of got a bit more cerebral in terms of my my game. Before that, I was sort of, you know, doing what they call the Maori sidestep, which is sort of um, running through the middle and, um, and you know, just basically herring around on the pitch without sort of too much strategic thought. And then sort of towards the end, I, I kind of realised that maybe that wasn't the best use of my limited energy and, and strength and it wasn't doing me much good physically. So, 
Um, so, so just sort of working out the right place to be on the pitch and, you know, making sure that I had a, a, a degree of lung capacity left in order to sort of make that break and, and go over the line, you know, was was quite important. And when I retired, I, I sort of carried that on a, a a bit more. I've I've had a bit of a sort of scientific um, sports science type interest in a very amateur type way, which which I've I've sort of carried forward. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it was a huge wrench um, moving away from the rugby field because there's a huge camaraderie there, and you know, um, which which you share. You know, regardless of backgrounds of of the players you played with, and you know, the club that I played for, Gosport and Fareham, um, you know, not. Um, a hugely fashionable club, but a very family-based club, and um, you know, it, it, I I sort of came up through the age groups with the same players onto the first team, and then and then sort of back down the other in the other direction. So you you, you kind of know the guys who you've played with for a number of years, and you know you still you know you still don't know what they do for a job because that's not the sort of thing that you talk about. So so losing those those sort of social connections on on a Saturday, you know, was was quite a tough thing. So the first direction I took was to to explore the sports which I had done um you know as cross training. So I've always been a, a keen cyclist, very keen follower of the Tour de France from, you know, from my teens and you know I've done some quite significant and long um cycle journeys. Um, in the past, um, including sort of um, down through France over the Pyrenees, Santander, and then and then back again, which was um, which was um, sort of quite exciting. But um, so so cycling, running, I did um, a couple of marathons, lots of half marathons. But um, you know, I, I think the running experience was probably the most educational because. I still have a rugby player's frame. I've got sort of slightly shorter legs than the um, the racing snakes that uh, I encountered down at the local running club. And I certainly, you know, from doing weight training throughout my rugby career, obviously I'm sort of carrying a bit of a timber on that as well. So um, the first race that I really trained for in terms of distance was the Berlin Marathon. And um, that's generally run during the autumn. It's quite flat, which is which is handy, uh, but it, it's also quite hot. And, and what I found is that um, um, that I broke down with injuries as I sort of upped my mileage fairly reliably. So there, I, I sort of turned into a huge running nerd. So you know, it was all about the it was all about the shoes. It was all about the socks. It was, you know, it, it was all about the the ergonomics of, of the movement. And, and you know, if I have to recommend one book to middle-aged athletes who happen to have a slightly more significant frame and who are running distances, there's a great book called um, Chi Running by a guy called Danny Dreyer. And it was that book that really turned around my form and, and allowed me to complete my training and to complete the, the marathon. Um, and and it, it's sort of very simple, but again, it sort of connects you with the ergonomics of, of your movement. And and recognizing that was something that that really helped me, you know, both with you know subsequent um, cycling trips, you know, just concentrating on your form, being more mindful of the way in which you're you're striking the the ground. You know, it's also very useful in terms of of warm ups and so on. You know, I, I was brought up in the time of dynamic stretching and all of that sort of stuff. And um, you know, a, a more more gentle regime for the um the midlife athlete was definitely a more effective approach. So so, so that that was running. Um, you know, it, it, um, I did Berlin. It was twenty seven degrees, by the way, when I did it. So it was a, a hugely hot day, but uh, managed to make it over the, the finishing line and um, number of of running events in between. Um, lots of lots of half marathons. Um, Stevenage half marathon, two two laps around Stevenage. I think you've probably done Stevenage when you've done the first lap around Stevenage. Um, and then I think think my headline was doing the um, the London Marathon in 2012. And and in terms of experiences, you know, I just absolutely loved it. And, you know, 
particularly the, the first half when you're running through the East End and everyone's sort of coming out of their mosques and synagogues and churches and so on on a Sunday morning, making a huge noise and cheering you along. And, you know, it's, it, it, I still feel quite emotional when I when I think about that. I, I was sort of emotional in the second half for, for a completely different reason while I was running around Canary Wharf as the, the kind of wheels dropped off um, essentially. And then it was it was back to euphoria as I sort of went down birdcage walk. So so that was that was really the um, the end of my running career, mostly because um, I don't think I my body coped very well with with the distances that I had to to run, and it it sort of took a bit out of me. So uh, then the search was on for a, for a, a, you know the full replacement for for rugby, and um, and that's when Sup came calling. Simon, so before could, we kind of sorry, move sorry, on to sorry, Jace, sorry, sorry, Greg, sorry, Jace. Um, Simon, what's the um, how old are you now? I mean, what, how old were you when you did the twenty twelve? How long after your rugby career ended? So I was forty two when I did um, twenty twelve, right. um, and yeah, I'm, I'm fifty two now. It's it's easy to work out because I was born in nineteen seventy. So I just uh, <laughs> hey, there we go, Jason. There you go. There you go. Same here. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, it, it was um, it was a little while after, and it took me a huge amount of, of hunting round. But uh, yeah, you know, once I once I um, saw the sport, once I got involved, it, it really gripped me. And I know that's something that's uh, that a lot of people are sharing uh, at the moment. So, and how did you? Just before we move on to the sub stuff, obviously, it's very. You moved from quite an explosive sport. It's just kind of short sprints. I know there's an aerobic element to rugby as well but that that's quite it's quite a change to shift to quite you know I mean marathons you know pretty much up there in terms of endurance sport like I mean you must have how did you cope in terms of you know things like training diet um recovery rest I mean that must have almost turned your world upside down really it it did although I came from a fairly good base because um you know, back in my school days, I was a pretty decent sort of middle distance athlete. And, you know, in terms of cycling, despite my sort of explosive elements, which were obviously part of of rugby, I, I had a very good relationship with hills. And I don't know whether it was just because I just didn't give up, but I was never defeated by a hill and I remain undefeated. Um, admittedly, I haven't tried Mont Ventoux yet, which is on the bucket list, but um but, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, there's a, a degree of bloody mindedness and sort of slow burn energy in there somewhere, which sort of helped. So so that allowed me to, to do that in terms of nutrition, um, all, all the usual things, sort of abandoning um, beer and so on for the duration of, of the training. Cheese, you know, that is my kryptonite. I love cheese. <laughs> I had to give that up as well. You know, again, I'm not sure whether it made too much difference to my my weight, but um, I, I kind of, uh, you know, there's a degree of abstinence, which, which was fine. And then, you know, I mean, interesting what you said about rest, because, um, in terms of my marathon training, um, I, I used a schedule and I, you know, I, I recognized fairly soon that, that the shorter runs during the week probably weren't sustainable if I wanted to do my longer run. So I think, you know, there's a whole mentality towards training, which is listen to your body and respond accordingly and don't do the usual macho male thing of just pushing through the pain because, you know, you'll push through the other side and then that will put you on the sidelines for a while. So certainly for my second marathon, I was very aware of that. And I, I just used some you know, the, I used the um, the weekday run as a bit of a, a recovery. It was the long runs that I was really focused on, and then I did the odd sort of um, hill session just to sort of uh, you know build out the the lungs and so on. So it was it was all about being patient. And I think you know, unfortunately, you know, males and particularly coming through a sort of fairly macho culture like rugby i think um you know ignoring pain and pushing through just it becomes less and less sustainable i think i think also it's um as you say jason it's an explosive thing so your training is really 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 more than running a length of a pitch in any one go but it's 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 high intensity you know 
you, you, you bent over double, hands on your knees, just gasping. And, um, and yeah, a, a play will last a lot. You know, if, if it's long, it's two or three minutes and then you're on your knees. So um, I say that transition into the more aerobic, slow pace, steady, steady pace is actually um, can be quite tricky. I mean, with my cycling, I just went, it was literally go on the bike and go as fast as you can for as long as you can. That was my training, <laughs> and I've I've yeah had to had to adapt as we got older, just more rest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, well, we we can help with the Von Two tips. So Greg, Greg and I did. Um, we joined the club to Singlair. <clears throat> when was that, Greg? Twenty seventeen. That was twenty seventeen. Yeah, on my fiftieth. My fiftieth yeah, year. Yeah. So three three times up in twelve less than twelve hours. My goodness me, that is super impressive. My my brother did it a few years ago. We were always going to do it together, and he he sort of got an offer before I I had availability. So he went and did it without me. But uh, three times that is that's seriously that's seriously impressive. Well, saying that we actually heard about this this guy who's staying in the same place where we were staying, and they were telling us that he he did it six times. So you, there is a double one. So you. And he was, he just, apparently it was just, he did it in very, very short space of time. It was like 12 hours to do it six times. We did it three times. Although we did have a leisurely lunch, didn't we, Jason? We did have a leisurely lunch, yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, why it would have been, Well, it was, it was kind of rude not to because the view was unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's quite spectacular because there's, there's three routes up there, isn't it? So you mm, ticked yeah. all of mm. those those off um I, I went up there on a bit of a recce and and there was there's one particular um corner on a in a car which is sort of quite challenging i mean it's almost a one in one so i you know and i i, I didn't sort of uh, i don't know whether you recognize that it, it's part of the the ascent that runs past the simpson m- memorial and it's a bit yes. sort of further down just as you come out the tree line um yeah, but, yeah i didn't fancy that one much but uh my brother made it up there, so he's he's of a similar build to me. So um, so big props to him for doing that. Well, on the last, right. I remember on the last ascent, um, we uh, no penultimate one. What, what's the, what's the what's the short sharp one, Jason? The bedwear. The, 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 the yeah. So we were we cycled past this girl who ran up it. She was running up it, <laughs> and, she, and the guy cycling with her, keeping up the tall. I don't know if it was a coach or not. He had to get up and walk. <laughs> he was he stroke he was struggling, but she she was phenomenal, phenomenal. He ran up it. Uh, it's like hats off, hats off. No, it's, it's, um, she wasn't a she wasn't a midlife athlete though. In fact, she was no, she was a bit younger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so that, so that's the sort of residual challenge in terms of um, of cycling. I, I also did um, a friend of mine who was the guy who taught me into doing the Berlin Marathon. Um, in a pub, which is the way it normally happens. Um, he he was in the army at the time, and uh, his his bunch uh, were doing some adventure training, doing John O'Groats to Land's End. So I did that with them for eight days, um, which was uh, you know which was quite emotional at, at the time. Mm. Not, not, not mm. quite as pleasant as cycling from uh, northern France down to Spain in terms of temperature. <laughs> it was a typical British summer, and uh, I remember just not far outside uh, Dumfries cycling down a hill with my eyes closed because basically the rain was horizontal and it was coming up from underneath me as well. So, um, so I'm glad I did it, but uh, you know, I I probably wouldn't uh, repeat that again. No. So how did you get into stand up paddleboarding? Well, as it tends to happen, it sort of gets its claws into you in a very unexpected way. So um, I moved down to the south coast here and uh, invited some of my friends uh, from London to come and spend the weekend on the coast. It was, you know, the weather conditions weren't particularly promising. It was raining. It was windy. So naturally, we decided that we wanted to go off and do a water sport. So um, there's a favourite location called Muddiford down here. It's It's a big sort of holiday makers um location it's like a sort of lagoon um sort of protected um area in terms of, of water and uh, we hired a couple of uh, sups and we hired a couple of kayaks 
and uh, set out into a headwind. Um, and I fell off probably about 30 or 40 times um, and instantly thought this is, this is definitely a sport for me. I, I think that, <laughs> that the key hook was, um, you know, the sociability side of it and also the fact that it had uh, a learning curve and it did challenge me because um you know when you're sort of slightly heavier than the average and you're standing on something which has you know multiple planes of movement plus you're also trying to apply power through you know another lever you know it is a very sort of complex you know in that situation certainly um type of of movement and um you know i've i've always fancied sort of surfing i thought that was perhaps a, a means to to just allow me to experience that sort of world as well so you know th that was the hook I, I you know it was it was just an incredible experience and and from there uh, landmark birthday um you know it coming up and um and i I, my wife kindly agreed that I could buy a, a stand-up paddleboard, and I did, and um, and the rest is is history. But I think I think the the really interesting thing, and, and one of the things that I'm I explore on the podcast, you know, from the the, the perspective of, of a mid-age athlete, is the whole learning experience, because while um, stand-up paddleboarding is it's probably more complex than kayaking. I can stand corrected on that. Certainly less challenging than than kite surfing and so on. Um, but but there are um, you know plenty of opportunities to to see yourself developing and you know to to have to show patients to have to sort of learn the conditions and understand a huge amount about the subtleties of of uh, you know of knowledge that you require and you know the other thing is stand up paddleboarding isn't just about you know the the abs of steel and the the sunsets and all of the sort of Instagram ready. Uh, images that that you see you know it can be as adrenalinified as you want and you know people um you know can you know obviously they they can do that stuff you know on the flat flat water and so on but you can use it in so many different ways you know joe's obviously on the on this podcast has talked about um touring you know going from a to b and it does provide that that really fantastic perspective that you get from the water that you don't get from a, a bike or or, or from uh, you know when you're running um, it's interesting that sorry simon to cut into you because i think i think i've heard you 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 allude to the fact that surfboarding is a little bit like cycling um and and I can kind of relate to that because there's there's so many you know there's cycling, but actually when you break cycling down, there's so many different parts to it. There's there is the sort of you know bike touring, bike packing stuff, uh, which I guess is more akin to Joe and what Joe does with with, with the setboarding. But then you've got you know you've got um, crit racing, you've got BMX, mm -hmm. you know you've got all of this all this other stuff. And I think it'd be good for you to give it give it give us the listeners a feel for all the different types of 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 setboarding that you that you can do yeah i mean it, it it's massive and uh, i use the uh, the cycling metaphor freely in all sorts of ways <clears throat> when i'm sort of explaining stand up paddleboarding but um i i think that the best thing you know for a for a, a um, or, or the, the shared characteristic with cycle is the impact aspect to it. So, you know, it is because you're on water, there is a, a low impact aspect to it. So for me, you know, who, who's sort of creaking um, in various joints from my my rugby career, um, you know, it's perfect for that because it's, it's a fluid environment. And as long as you've got the right sort of um, ergonomics and, you know, you, you obviously develop that and, and can be coached and, and learn that, you know, you can you can do the sort of low impact touring where you sort of do the do the distance, and you know it, it, it doesn't necessarily cause you any any huge damage as long as you're you're sort of doing it right. So so in terms of endurance rides, you've got that. You've got the racing side. So um, you know, like bike racing, you know, there's a, a sort of a gear and you know all the gear and no idea type um sort of approach to that so you know the um the racing stand-up paddle boards are these days are, are 14 foot they are very narrow um you know 
I think this year, Starboard, who's who's the sponsor of our our podcast, brought it down to nineteen point five inches. So if you can nineteen point seven five, I think to be exact. So, um, so, so there's a huge amount of of um, design that goes into that in order to make sure that you know that the shape of the bottom of the board and so on that that sort of acts almost like a sort of catamarani type sort of operation to try and keep you um on the straight and narrow but um you know and there's some fantastic athletes who have um you know done some quite amazing things um there's an australian world champion called michael booth i've had on the, the podcast who you know hugely inspirational guy and very much into sort of learning and, and developing um, we've got um, sup surfing. So this is particularly good for the middle-aged athlete. Um, when I went out attempting to surf, it was the pop-up, which finished me every time. And, you know, it, it, it's a difficult technique to get, you know, weight distribution, all of that sort of stuff. So for sup surfing, you're already up. You're up, you're standing, and you've got a, a, a paddle to help propel you, um, you know, to the right speed so you can catch the wave. So, uh, really, that is my my catnip, I think, in terms of, um, of of the aspect of the sport which I enjoy the most. And you know, the, the second, you know, there is the slightest sniff of the right sort of conditions, um, you know, down down the beach from me, I'm out there, and it's the same. Um, you know, crew who tend to pop out at the same time. So again, you've got you've you, you've got all of that cardio work. Um, you're building your skills. You've got the the elation of catching a, a ride onto the beach. Plus, you've got all your mates paddling with you. And you know, being there on the beach when the sun comes up over the uh, the Isle of Wight is is a pretty nice um, sight first thing in the morning as well. So, um, so so that's that's another aspect. Um, another aspect, you know, if you're looking for the the adrenaline side is downwinding. So um, one of the things that, um, you know, that affects stand up paddleboarders sometimes positively, often negatively is the effects of wind. Because if you're standing up on something and the wind happens to be behind you, you know, your body is essentially acting as a, as a huge sail. And, um, you know, in terms of safety, that can be you know, the biggest cause of RNLI incidents when people don't realise that. And there's a, a, a breeze sort of running offshore. People can be carried out really quickly. And uh, if they don't have the skills to get back, that can be a bit of an issue. But um, in terms of downwinding, it's it's a point to point type run. So you, your cars, you know, one car's one end, one car's the the other end, and then you know obviously the, the the tidal conditions and winds need to be blowing in the right direction. But essentially, it allows you to go out in you know what can sometimes be sort of pretty high winds. I've been out in sort of sixty odd mile an hour winds, and I mean, essentially you know you're looking at about you know eight miles done incredibly quickly. And and the draw on that is that. Um, you know, you're essentially surfing. If you're doing it right, you're essentially surfing a wave for the majority of, of that that trip in that direction. You know, it isn't always the case, but when you actually, you know, get on that wave and, you know, you've got the wind behind you, it, it's an incredible uh, experience. Now, big safety warning on that one. Do not go out on your own and do that. You know, you need to absolutely know what you're doing. It's the full kit and caboodle you need to let the coast guard know that you're you're going out with a bunch of mates and you know um pfd safety equipment you know absolutely you need to know what you're doing but um in terms of adrenaline you know that's another another key one and then i guess another one another key one at the moment is foiling um which is um you know something that i haven't tried i don't trust myself but essentially it's a, it's a foil fixed to the bottom of the um of the board and essentially as you get a bit of speed going it can sort of lift you up and out of the water so you're about sort of half a meter above the water and then it's a question of, of pumping the board just to try and keep that that movement going and and there are variations of that using wings and and all sorts so i guess um you know for the windsurfers i know one of you is a windsurfer is, is that i have done windsurfing and mm. kite surfing in the past when i was there a you, younger you. a younger man there you go so, so that, that's one for you then jason 
Um, and and then, of course, I, I know you're going to ask me um, because, um, you know, we're comparing this to cycling. Uh, bicycle polo, as we know, is such a massive sport in the UK. Uh, we also have SUP polo. <laughs> I was expecting that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, but, uh, you know, again, like surfing, you know, you're changing direction. There's a bit of body contact in there. You're basically using um, paddles with which are adapted, which allow you to pick up a little football and sort of throw it towards a goal. So, you know, there are, there are, there are so many other options that, um, that SUP's been used for. But, um, you know, it, you, you, and you can sort of pitch things wherever you want to, whether you want to sort of go touring, whether you want the adrenaline, you know, the racing scene is is pretty significant in this country. We've got some really good um, athletes and, um, you know, but but I think, you know, that that's the um, the way in which you can develop up and you know part of the podcast you know one of one of the missions we've got we've got a few sort of common themes that tend to run through but one of them is to to you know for people who are sort of treating it as a glorified beach toy and and you know just paddling up and back and thinking well you know this isn't much cop that there are a huge array of things that that you can do with a stand-up paddle board and the the most frequent question that tends to get asked on Facebook groups and so on is you know which stand up paddle board should I buy and then I go down to the cycling metaphor uh, because you know if you imagine mm. buying your first bike you are not going to buy a, a super speedy time trial bike are you or or, or a full suspend uh, suspension um, you know mountain bike you're going to get something that you can sort of take around the block and just get used to it and and that tends to be the sort of stand up paddle board that um that most people kind of get to to grips with as long as it floats you um as long as you've got a decent paddle and 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 that you know in itself is, is a challenge with some of these packages because some of them are sort of aluminium horrible sort of plastic jobs and 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 having a decent paddle makes the biggest difference to your performance but essentially you know you can start off with those and then if you're you're like me you know the ratio of paddle boards is whatever i've got plus one i think that's familiar to to cyclists as well and and, and plus one yeah Mm. so um so yeah i mean that that that's kind of the way that it goes with stand-up paddle boarding You, you buy your first board you know a general use board I've tried my inflatable for downwinding, for surfing, for racing, for everything, basically. And it's not particularly high powered and it's very slow and it's incredibly heavy. But, you know, it it works. You don't need to have the perfect gear for all situations until you get into the sport and then uh, crack on, basically. Because I just just ask, um, with the racing, what sort of distances are are we talking about? Um, it varies. So, so there's basically technical um, races um, that there are, um, which, which involve lots of of turns and so on, and and there are sort of distance races. So, um, oh goodness me, you put me on the spot here. I mean, you know, you're looking, um, I guess, ten k something like that. I guess that would be the standard distance race um i think the difference there tends to be the environment in which it's it's run so um there was a there was an old school race called the battle of the paddle i'll, I'll give you the link to share that in your your show notes um if you like but it was it was run in in california and it was an absolute classic because it was a it was a beach race you know you, you start and finish on the beach but the surf conditions were huge which caused you know huge amounts of carnage and clearly a lot of uh, of excitement amongst the the observers so you know obviously that is um that's the sort of more extreme end of it um you know there are lake races and and so on there's um uh, across scotland one that goes through the great glen which is a, a classic distance race in this country um there's the you know classic um european races like the Glagla, which is run on on lake ansi um you know and and um you know basically anywhere where there's a decent stretch of water you know that's that's where where you can race do, do they have um just flat out sprints as you, you know like, like kayak sprints you see in the olympics just straight line a to b two thousand meters bang off yeah. you go do you have any of those um I, I i'm not sure whether there are too many of those i mean i'm sure i'm i certainly not amongst the 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 sort of main blue ribband events because 
you know, turn, turns and so on is, you know, is part of the drama. I think, you know, like cycling, drafting, you know, potentially is a, is a big bit uh, in it. Um, I, of course, have omitted to mention, you know, one of the, the, the key races, which is the 11 cities race, um, which is um, I'm not sure whether you're familiar um, with this, but it's it's run in, in Holland um, and um, it originated as a skating race on the canals. And basically it takes uh-huh. on 11 cities. It, it's uh, it's some ungodly amount of, of, of miles and, and you can do it either nonstop, which I think that the um, the the best paddlers have come in within 24 hours or you can take it like a sort of a Tour de France type um, stage race where, you know, you do about sort of 20 odd kilometres stroke miles a day, which is probably enough for, for all of us in terms of a, a daily um, daily total. So, you know, th- th- there's a huge amount of, of classic races. Obviously, you know, Hawaii and, and so on is, is you know, where the, the latest sort of stand-up paddleboard history originated with, Laird Hamilton and Dave Kalama and and all of that sort of beach beach culture out out there, um, and there, there's also um, international racing bodies as well. So there are um, there are races. I think there's um, again come very unprepared on the on the schedule, but um, you know there there is a race in London this year, um, which is part of the World Series, and um, and and they paddle you know Australia and um, and and um you know all over europe and as well as the us so um so lots of racing activity if you get into the, the subculture and simon what are some of the um it's interesting you know, carrying on that cycling analogy we had um we had phil cavell who who's written a book called midlife cyclist he runs or co-runs and co-founded uh, cycle fit in, in in london and uh, it was interesting that he um uh, set boards uh, as sort of part of his kind of um, you know different cross training mm. I suppose rather than just cycling all the time um, I, I, I set board but not you know again just just get an inflatable out on, on the Thames or on the beach or whatever so what are I mean obviously this sport will be new to many probably listeners what are some of the benefits physically I guess, and spiritually, because you alluded to, you know, seeing the eye, the sunrise on the Isle of Wight in the morning. That's that's probably a big thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and there are actually multiple benefits, um, you know, the the top sort of six inches of, of the body in terms of, of stand up paddleboarding. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of spending time out in nature and also um, with in a water environment, you know, there have been all sorts of studies. And I think people, when they came out of the first lockdown, intuitively were sort of, you know, having been introduced mm. to walking around their local area, you know, also sort of compounded that by looking at other opportunities to get out there and and encounter nature. And I think I think that is, you know, a fantastic um, utilisation of it. it, you know, particularly early early on you know it lends itself to being very meditative because if you're thinking about sort of whitewashing the fence or or you know what you need to add to your shopping list you know if you're not concentrating on where you're going and and what sort of coming in you'll you'll end up in the water so it kind of compels you to concentrate on on the now so so there's all of that sort of stuff but also you know as we we sort of look ahead i think you know skills like you know learning a new sport from scratch is is something that sort of helps with you know your cognitive development um and particularly something which is so different so you know i was 100% dryland athlete hadn't done anything on the water at all and obviously that that sort of pushes you um you know particularly in terms of of balance because you know there are um, you know, you are being moved in different planes and that has a knock on effect, you know, in terms of your, um, you know, you, uh, what muscles you use in order to um, to utilize. And then just sort of running through the the physical benefits, you know, obviously you, you're using your shoulders to, to reach out and, and catch the water with your with your paddle. You're, you're leaning forward at, at the hips. You're basically doing um, you you're doing sort of squats and a combination of squats and kind of kettlebell swings, I guess, as you, as you're sort of 
following those sorts of movements so it's a full body thing you're engaging your core because you know that's where your your locus of of balance is and you're using your your legs and your knees and your ankles as as sort of pistons to sort of equalize and you know pushing forward and and then just to prove that this is a full body exercise um what people often find um and i still do is that you can get a sort of crampy type feel on the bottom of your feet and and you're nodding in recognition there there, but but that is basically validation that all of the power that you're putting through the paddle in order to propel yourself you know if you think about where that power is being applied it's being applied at the bottom of your foot because you know that's where you're sort of dragging your, your your power through so so in terms of, of sort of low impact um, exercise and cross training, I, I don't I don't think there is a better exercise than that. And, and you know, if you add in the fact that you can sort of go out with a mate or whatever and just go up and down the river, not even notice you've really done any exercise if you're not racing each other um, and um, and you come back and you, and you definitely feel, you know, the benefits of being out there in nature in the water you know you've had a good full body workout and um you know maybe uh, if you've fallen in you've got the benefit of a bit of a cold water immersion as well so uh, so everyone's a winner really and how would you I, I guess you know some of the issues that some people may have about going out on on a paddleboard you know i think you alluded to it earlier about you know the downwind stuff you know it's it's you've got to you've got to factor in that safety stuff you know can you get started in a way that you know doesn't involve um a lot of safety issues and then how do you kind of progress what's the what's the best way of i'm just thinking of listeners who might think well i've got one already like me Mm -hmm. i've got a couple of boards um, I can paddle and I can paddle in a very safe way, but how do I, how do I move that forward? Well, I, th- I think the classic route is, is the one that um, people t- um, sometimes tend to be reluctant to do, which is to, to go out and, and get some instruction because while you can stand up and, and do the basics, you know, in terms of, of the ergonomics, in terms of sort of turning the board, you know, moving your feet around the board is is a key sort of, um, I guess, a, a, th- a threshold for, um, you know, improving your your utilisation of the board. I think I think that's that's a key one there. So I'd put that under under skills. Um, there's making sure you've got the right equipment. So we know that the classic advice is wearing a, a, a PFD, a personal flotation device. Um, and the other thing that that um, that sort of connects equipment is making sure that you've got the right leash as well, um, and um, that you know that that as as the popularity of the sport has increased over the last few years, there has unfortunately been some fatalities in the sport, and and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about the sort of the base knowledge, but um, essentially it's really important that um, that um, if you are moving in water which is likely to be flowing particularly so we're talking rivers um, you know any type of, of flow in there or if you're in a tidal location and paddling in an estuary um, that you wear uh, what's called a quick release leash and um, people refer to it as a qr leash which isn't very helpful for for lay people who, who kind of want to understand what it is but essentially it's a belt you you uh, attach your your um, board leash to it and you can as the name of it you can release it really quickly and um, if you need to and the, the reason why this is important is because um you know there have been a number of incidents where people have sort of come to an obstacle in the water say a mooring point or or even a boat they've fallen off the board the board's gone one way round the board they've sort of floated round the other side and basically you've got the flow pulling you in two directions and essentially pulling you underneath the water now it is remarkably difficult to release that ankle leash when you're being pulled at that rate and there's a fantastic video um, by a guy called Barry Hughes on on YouTube again I can supply you with that link but but what they've done is they've demonstrated it in a very very safe environment however you know even when he comes out of the demo he looks somewhat shell-shocked so so that you know there are dangers there which 
you know, if, if you don't see them, it, you know, if you don't anticipate them, uh, you won't know about them. And, um, and, you know, I've mentioned about offshore winds as well. Um, and there, there are other dangers. So, so basically what we've talked about, we've talked about equipment, we've talked about skills and, and, you know, in terms of skills, you know, we talk about the paddling and the turning and all of that sort of stuff. There are some basic skills, which are really important to learn, which are how to fall off a board. So believe it or not, you know, when you fall off, you want to stay as near to the surface of the water as possible. So doing a sort of reverse starfish into the water rather than a, a sort of uh, Olympic dive into the water is is the favoured approach because you don't know what's underneath the surface and you want to keep your mouth uh, above the water for all sorts of reasons these days. I'm sure we've seen the Surfers Against Sewage's campaign. <laughs> so, so, so there's that one. But there's also sort of dangers of cold water shock and so on. Um, and and also climbing back on the board. So, so you know, I, I've seen this as an instructor with middle-aged ladies particularly. Sometimes um, they struggle to get back onto the board when they've fallen off. And that's a skill. It is a skill, you know, that there's a bit of strength on there, but there's also technique. So all of those things need to be sort of practised uh, with an instructor. So, oops. There we go. So um, I just hit my microphone. I'm being too demonstrative. This is a, a subject which I've got huge passion for, as you can tell. So, so we've got the equipment here. Uh, we've got the skills. The other one is knowledge. And here I'm just going to do a little bit of a, a sales pitch here, because back in 2020, um, I put together a, a safety knowledge course. And one of the really difficult things about um, getting information about stand-up paddling is, you know, online, you know, you can Google on YouTube and it will present a huge amount and a range of things but they're not necessarily presented first of all to the right level of depth for a beginner so so what often happens is people go into it and then the people who because they want to deliver value they go very very deep without covering the basics um the YouTube YouTube obviously doesn't necessarily present the range of things that you really need to know um, as, as a stand-up paddle boarder as well. So what I did is I put together a course which covers the whole range of subjects which you need to be aware of to the right detail. You know, I'm not going to be talking about things like chart datum and all of this sort of you know stuff around around tides it, it is on a on the on a need to know basis but it what it does is it provides you with the range of things that you need to be aware of and i think i think the value with that is once you know that information and you know what things to look out for you know it forever and if if you don't then you can come back um you know living by the coast as i do you know i get um, contact with stand-up paddle boarders who come from inland and the, the coast is a very very different mm. environment there are so many moving parts and you know what I've done as part of my course is to to sort of blend those elements because you know it's not just about wind it's not just about tide it's about sort of how they they come together so um, so that there's a number of, uh, of resources on there um, other courses are available, I'm sure. Um, but there you go. That's just a, a bit of a, a sales pitch for, for, for me. But I, I think on that subject, um, you know, knowledge, there's a lot of knowledge out there. Again, another difficulty with a new sport is there are lots of enthusiasts out there, are lots of Facebook groups. And possibly one of the worst things that you can do, you know, if you're asking for advice is to basically ask on those groups, because there are a lot of people who have been you know, paddling for six weeks, but feel very qualified to be able to offer you advice. Some of it a bit trite. They can put themselves in really weird situations and advertise it on, on the group. You know, I don't know whether you rec uh, recall sort of jackass, you know, a couple of times I've had to sort of intercede in Facebook groups for people who have done something incredibly dangerous, who have somehow managed to get away with it, and then who volunteered themselves as a tour leader for the next time. And it's like... Oh, for the love of God, please no. So, so, um, so I think you know. The, coming back to the course, the idea is to make paddlers self-sufficient. That's the watchword. If you can work out the conditions for yourself and manage yourself, then that is the the key objective. And I think 
you know, it, it all boils down to to one phrase, which is repeated endlessly both my, by myself and, and other people in the industry, which is, if in doubt, don't go out. You know, you can cope with a headwind if you're out on your bike or if you're you're running. You know, it doesn't cause you a huge amount of inconvenience. But if you the if the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, then you will be added to the numbers of people. Um, you know rescued by the RNLI, um, you know, several miles o- offshore and uh, rather cold. And what we'll do, Simon, if you can if you can send all those links, your course and various other things, we'll put them in the in, in the show notes so that um, any listeners who are who are dabbling in in setboarding like me and and Phil Cavell, and I'll make a note of making sure Phil uh, Phil has it as well. We'll um, we we can we can hopefully brush up on our skills. Um, you mentioned cold water immersion. There, are you a bit of a a bit of a cold water immersion sort of junkie? I am. I am. So um, so one of my episodes was recorded with uh, Professor Mike Tipton, who is you know the world's foremost expert in extreme exercise physiology um, he always used to pop up on those sort of emergency SOS type programs whenever they were talking about people being sort of out at sea for prolonged periods of time but uh, he he was um, he was at my rugby club I knew him very well from there and uh, I was a participant when I was a student in one of his studies which involved me sort of bobbing in a in a in a cold thing of water for up to two hours at a time until my internal body temperature dropped to a certain degree and then he he hoiked me out and rewarmed me i I won't tell you how they managed to gauge what my internal temperature was (laughs) i I think you can uh, we can guess we can guess you you can guess but that wasn't the worst thing about it because it's (laughs) very boring just bobbing for for two hours and reading a book is not sort of a sustainable uh, course of action although I did actually get my face um, in the observer science page Um, they sent a photographer down um, who apparently was a specialist in uh, in water photography and uh, to show how cold the water was he sort of ducked his head halfway under the water to take a sort of a mixed shot it ended up losing consciousness and they had to sort of get him fishing out (laughs) but um, but luckily the photo survived it was it was it was great it was show i showed it to everyone at university you could just see the sort of mouthpiece and nose clip and a bit of my forehead so they had to take it um at face value but basically the majority of my my rugby club you know turned up as guinea pigs at some point um and you know obviously cold water is something which is very much of the moment so you know there's the wim hof program um, which is on at the moment and and there's a real big focus at the moment on cold water shock and cold water shock is a very reliable killer and um you know not just for stand up paddle boarders it's um you know for swimmers at every time ta- every stage of the year and um the um the issue really is so 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 they're both positives and negatives obviously about cold water just just sort of get getting the negatives out the way um if if your body temperature um if you're unhabituated to cold water and you hit that that water there's something called the cold water shock which kicks in which is sort of something that you'll be familiar to if you ever accidentally step into a cold shower which is that sort of that whole sort of gasping type thing where you're trying to catch your breath now um there are various risks with that sort of first acute phase and that is if you're gasping and if your head is under the water then you can potentially inhale water and 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 that can cause you real damage both immediately or or sort of later so um so the idea with that is to float to live it's a a campaign the rnli have been um sort of very prominent in fact might Tipton um, helped them put together that that campaign. It's been running for a number of years, but it's a particular danger at this time of the year because you know we'll get the odd very nice, very nice, nice hot day. We're out there in our swimming trunks on the stand up paddleboard, you know, trying to get a bit of a tan. Um, and then we suddenly hit the water, so we're going from a, a, a situation where we're physiologically very very warm into water which is probably at its coldest so you're looking about you know, nine to twelve degrees anything below sort of blood temperature is is cold water generally around about 15 degrees is is 
is is seen as sort of officially um, cold water, and and you know anything any that sort of acute reaction is likely to bring on cold water shock. So. You know, it is a real danger. Most people fall into water accidentally. But the advice is, you know, however you find yourself in the water, you you kind of float to live. So so that's that's the sort of negative side of cold water. I, th- I think for a stand up paddle border, it's making sure that you dress for the water temperature and not for the air temperature. And what you're looking for is is something that will take that initial cold water um, shock, you know, off your first immersion in the water. And then you can sort of climb back onto your board and basically paddle really hard to, to get warm again afterwards. Um, what helps you with that is if you're wearing a, a, P, a PFD, personal flotation device, a buoyancy aid, and that will help um, you in two ways. It can keep you a little bit warm. It means that you don't go qu- quite as far uh, into the water as you, you would do otherwise, and it will pop you up a lot quicker and keep your your head, you know, in the process, um, you know, above the water. So, so that that's the that's the kind of negative side. I don't want to underplay it, but but really important at this time of the year. Um, the the positive side, yeah, uh, immersion in the water absolutely fantastic it's the way that i start my day um and interestingly enough there hasn't been a massive amount of of um evaluation of of the sort of physical benefits of it scientifically you know they tend to look at the sort of the glum role of of cold water rather than positives but um over the last you know 18 months you know a lot of people have used cold water immersion in all sorts of ways um, one of the one of the key things that it seems to help with is, is mental health. So um, Mike, in in the episode I recorded with him, talked about um, a lady who who went sea swimming every day and found that she was able to sort of gradually come off an, antidepressants um, as a result of that that immersion. Um, I've heard that cold water immersion can very much help. Um, sort of mobilized dopamine levels so it really helps sort of balancing neurotransmitters and so on um, there is notionally a, an anti-inflammatory um, effect um, obviously you know when you do go in even if you're habituated you do sort of breathe so there's a sort of flexing of the of the um, you know your, your vessels and, and and your cardiovascular system when when you come out so you know I, I think that the benefits are um you know, to, to be really, um, you know, firmed up. But I think, you know, people tend to gravitate towards things that make a difference f- for them. Uh, intuitively, it's not, you know, not something that you would do if you, if you were, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, if you were in your right mind, possibly. But if you look at organizations, so there's a fantastically named organization um, of lady swimmers called the Blue Tits, which uh, grew up in uh, <laughs> in Cornwall. And Mike's been doing a bit of work with them. Basically, they're they're all over the place. And, you know, it, you know, they they've they've found that there are benefits from cold water. There's benefits from the, the social um, contact and you know I would say um, I would say you know don't knock it try it and and the other great thing about this is that even if you wanted to do it as a sort of pragmatic measure for your stand-up paddle boarding or your other sport just to guard against um, cold water shock um, Mike said that um, that one session can potentially gear you up and and the the sort of results of it can gear you up and habituate you to cold water for up to i think it's about nine months so so those you know just that single session just staying there in the water can can sort of prepare your body for for cold water shock for quite a prolonged period of time so yeah i can testify for that so we had um we had a lady uh, on. Um, she's, she goes by the nickname of the Mirtha Mermaid, uh, a lady called Kath. She was the first person to swim inside the Antarctic Polar Circle. She swam a mile in just a swimsuit, wow. which, um, I mean, we're still kind of bowled over. But she uh, tried to encourage both of us to sort of do some cold water stuff. Um, I did it with some showers um, and then sort of gradually built up to like, I mean, I can do over over a minute, two minutes in, in the shower, but it's surprising how quickly, um, even if I don't do it for a couple of days, I can I can go back into a cold shower and, it, and it's fine. Mm. And I noticed um, when we were on holiday last year, earlier in the season, so the water was cold, I, I swam in the water fine because I think those cold showers that effectively 
provided some kind of um i don't know assistance you like in yeah uh, adaptation or whatever you want to call it really so greg you haven't uh no (laughs) no no i've i have spent so many times i mean i i I think i've got all my habituation for cold uh for cold uh water immersion from just cold showers after rugby games in the middle of winter Mm. yeah i feel you (laughs) i feel you on that one (laughs) so i'm good i'm good yeah Yeah. Yeah. well i mean it it is you know it, it it it's worth it's worth going and and you know as you say it it lasts a huge amount of time i think sometimes the showers are, are the more challenging thing so i've got a, a little tub um just outside my uh, my back door here so so in the morning it's sort of swimmers on out there and uh, get in there and when there's a little bit of sort of uh, a thin bit of skin over the top of the the tub that that's the most challenging bit but i think once you've done that then the water underneath isn't going to get any colder so once you've sort of dealt with your fear there and got in um and uh, you know as i said it does does wake you up you're you're ready to go at uh, when work starts definitely that's for sure so simon what i mean have you got any kind of challenges or whatever lined up with with, with that board in any of this kind of 11 cities race or anything like that that you've got sort of coming up um i've just um i've i've had a bit of reverse snobbery in terms of my my kit so so you know the purists say you know hard boards are definitely the way to go and you know um inflatables are are sort of somewhat looked down on so i've i've sort of maintained my inflatable for the last 11 years and relentlessly used it for surf sessions and and just about everything else however i have uh, i've recently taken delivery of a brand new board uh, and um so so my challenge over the summer is to to um to sort of start gearing my skills up on that and you know particularly in terms of of surfing and what it will allow me to do is to take on sort of slightly higher waves than the than the sort of um sort of knee knee sort of chest height ones i've been dealing with um, previously so so that's going to kind of be my uh, my challenge i think i think the other challenge um, not necessarily physically, but um, in terms of safety, you know, it's a massive um, passion of mine. And, you know, we're, I, I think there's a bit of a, a movement within the industry to start looking at a sort of overarching approach to safety to make sure that, you know, people have at least the, the basic elements of knowledge when they go out on the water. And, you know, it, it's not to be worthy or sort of health and safety type thing it's genuinely an unfamiliar environment to most people. They don't know what they don't know when they go out there. And a lot of the the key risks are ones that are invisible. So, you know, water flow and wind, you know, being, being the two sort of main risks. So I think if we can get that sort of education over to people and get, you know, the gatekeepers, the brands and so on engaged. And I think, um, I think we can hopefully make things, uh, you know, safer, I think you know, you know, and and hopefully uh, reduce the workload of the RNLI, which unfortunately is bound to be uh, raised by paddleboarders this summer. Mm. Simon, you you'll have heard, well, you probably did listen to Joe Mosley's one, so you you know that we always finish up with with a, the same two questions. She was um, very sly on that one. I thought, sort of incorporating, I think. Well, she's not the only one. There have been others who have asked for, you know, Mm. multiple choices and so on. Um, But I think we probably know the answer to one of the questions. The first question is, if you could only do two sports or two forms of exercise um, for the rest of your days, what would those two be? Well, the the two would definitely be rugby and and definitely SARP. And, you know... I, I I haven't said that you know the other draw of SAP is that it's it's a, a sort of collaborative sport. There's a certain ethos on the water. There's a, a sort of aloha type spirit which is sort of bol- um, borrowed from the Polynesian side, which is all about sort of mutual respect and so on. And you know Polynesian obviously has a huge influence on rugby. So there are some really solid connections between the the two sports, which. Um, which which I love and and that's why it became my second spiritual home. So yeah, rugby and stand up paddleboarding. I love those two. Love those two. Greg, 
Oh, right. Okay. So now we have the uh, the um, Groundhog Day of of your sporting career, whatever that might be. What is there? Is there one moment that stands out more than any other, and the one that you want to relive again and again? Um, there's been some times, there have been some tackles I've put in on the rugby pitch, which, yeah, uh, which okay. I yeah, yeah. enjoyed. Um, there is obviously the, the sunrise um, over Avon Beach on a on a, a cold, wintry morning with fantastic surf. But I think my best moment and is uh, one that I had when I was cycling through the Pyrenees. Um, and um, I was, uh, this was sort of, I guess, uh, early 90s. Um, English um, tourist um, touring on on my bike. I had pots and pans sort of hanging off the back of my bike, <laughs> and um, and I had that sort of bloody mindedness about going up a mountain. And I was halfway up, and I was joined uh, by a fantastically elegant Basques cyclist. He was, you know, deeply tanned, lycra all over the place, you know, hair slicked back, you know, the the whole nine yards, the epitome of a, a early nineties cyclist. And he looked at me rather disparagingly on on my sort of loaded up bike and my baggy shorts and uh, and sort of, you know, um, gave me a look and then headed up off the hill. So so I I followed him and uh, <laughs> I managed to put the pedal down and about 100 metres further up, he looked back to see how far. Um, he had dropped me and uh, he he saw me right behind him and sort of gave it a little wobble because he, he certainly wasn't expecting that. So that that was that was my moment of triumph. I, I thought I thought lesson lesson learned. I'll let him go. So uh, that would be the experience that I would love to to re-repeat. I love that's, that. That 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 is great. great. That's a that's a typical rugby player's sort of uh, <laughs> philosophy. That isn't it? Just let him know I was there. Yeah. <laughs> Simon, it's been brilliant having you on. Um, and and I'd urge any any listeners, if you're into SEP or you want to get into SEP uh, and just start in, check out the podcast. Um, there's some fantastic interviews in there, but you'll learn a load of stuff as well. We'll share a load of stuff on the show notes. Um, so hopefully you can kind of take that SEP journey. If you're just starting or you want to progress, um, you, you can take that a bit further. So thank you again for, for, for coming on. It's uh, been really good. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, take care.